Now, this is Box to Box with Dean Hennessy and Francis Leach. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The king of storage, moving and more. Absolutely fantastic! G'day and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football and Macquarie Radio. NTS, Francis Leach here with Dean Hennessy. Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgy both uh, AWOL this weekend. We'll catch up with Edgy a little later on as we uh, get to stoppage time, Dino, because we'll be talking to him in Paris. Looking forward to that. As we get towards the start of the Women's World Cup. First edition news coming up soon with Willem van der Denderen. Uh, but first, we will uh, jump into, in the next little while, Richard Bayless, who will be with us to talk about the Champions League final. We'll also catch up with Heather Garrick, legend of the Matildas, to give us her perspective on what Ante Milic's team can expect uh, in uh, the World Cup in France in a couple of weeks' time. Mark Bosnich to celebrate Aston Villa's return to the Premier League. All that ahead of us, plus all the news that is fit to print. And Willem is here to talk us through it, to kick things off on Box to Box. Willem, how are you going? Yeah, good, thank you, Francis. How are you? Not too bad. Wellington Phoenix have been fined almost a million dollars by the FFA, having failed to reach a series of off-field metrics during the season. Despite increased crowds and improved on-field performance, it's believed the Phoenix have not reached agreed benchmarks in regards to TV revenue. The agreement was part of the Phoenix's temporary licence agreement, which will lapse at the end of next season. Guys, with all the uh, groundswell and positivity that's built around the Phoenix this season, this seems really counterproductive that the FFA had slapping with this fine, I think. I think it's a message, isn't it, Dean? Oh, I think it is, but look, I agree with you. It's negativity at its best, but I mean... Do we really know what it's all about? I mean, I mean, look, I think it's a hard market for for them to, and I think they've done a really good job this year. And obviously the the Mark Rudin factor, and then him leaving, and obviously then you know <clears throat> there's obviously changes in football, but it's always been one of them. Do, do they fit into what we're trying to build as a country? Um, You'd love to know, and I think Willem makes a good point, given. Uh, the precarious nature of the franchise in New Zealand, where they're going to find a million dollars to to service that fine? And what does that do to where they might be able to place those resources to grow grow the game, to try to meet the benchmarks that they haven't met this time? And given that they're only on one more year on their provisional licence, it doesn't bode well for the future of the Phoenix. No, it doesn't. It's it's just forcing them out, isn't it? And what does it mean for next year? Who's going to want to join the club that's basically sitting on death row? The coach has just left. um, You know, they are on life support and it sounds like uh, the future doesn't bode well for the Wellington Phoenix. Matilda's veteran Lisa Devanna has declared she can't see an end to her career in sight as she prepares for a fourth World Cup. <laughs> Devanna already holds the all-time record for Matilda's goals with 47 and could break Cheryl Salisbury's record for appearances while at the World Cup. She's currently on 151, just four away from the record and I think she provides a fantastic balance to the squad. Um, I think it's a really well-balanced Matilda squad and you need an older head at the top of that chain. I think well, she's it's funny, got a lot we were, to offer. It was funny we were laughing about that and it's laughing for a real positive reason that she's she's life and soul. She's most probably the Matilda that has had the funniest moment on this show when they were in a carpool and that was one of the funniest... Um, one of the funniest interviews I've ever experienced. She was absolute dynamite. I saw her in the camp when I went up to Sydney on that coaching course, and she was lively there. So, look, I think it's fabulous. And, you know, I think she's still got the goods. But it's like anything, when you get a bit older, but when you get a bit older, you get a bit smarter and a bit experienced. So she'll know what she can do and, and to her best effect. And what she can't do, she'll 
she'll hide it and she'll she'll definitely uh, contribute massively in this tournament. Well, Alicia's great skill is playing well on the big occasion Absolutely. and scoring important goals. And her 47 goals reflects that, but she's got a killer instinct around uh, the penalty box, which, you know, she's not going to start. No, so, but they can use but it's it. That, the... It's that impact thing, isn't it? That's Absolutely. what you want. You just need that, you know, it's, it's, it's getting a bit tight. Like, throw her on and all of a sudden, bang. She'll find a way. The other thing about it from, from talking to people in around the camp in the last few years is that her seniority is something she really prides herself on now. Yeah. There was a time when, at least early in her career, when she was she was a wild one. Oh, <laughs> she I, I think she still wise. is, I think. She still is, probably. But she now actually really appreciates her role as a senior statesperson in that team and as a mentor for some of the younger players because she's been there in, within the Matilda set up as it's evolved from being semi-professional and the women in that team have had to basically fight for everything they've, course, they've got yeah. and they still do but to watching it now be on the precipice of being fully professional and you know the next generation of players enjoying the fruits of Fruit all the hard work that, absolutely and uh yeah i think she's she's one of my all-time favorites so i hope that she can have an impact there and uh, yeah she'll play on she'll play on anywhere you know even if it's not professionally she'll still be playing until <laughs> the legs don't work get, so. get, get pascal <laughs> Lale at the moment <laughs> give you the tip well um, a couple of the A-League's greatest foreigners have announced they won't be returning next season, with Isaias and Roy Krishna set to leave Adelaide and Wellington, respectively. Isaias will draw his decorated six years with the Reds to a close and will most likely head to Qatar. He won two FFA Cups, a premiership, and was best of field in their 2016 championship win. Now, earlier this year, he was also granted Australian citizenship and has two uh, children born here, so hopefully he's not lost to the Australian game for good. And as for Krishna, the reigning Johnny Warren medalist, he's agreed terms with the South Korean side. He's Wellington's all-time leading goal, goal scorer with 50 goals and stated he wouldn't leave the Phoenix for another A-League side. So there he's love for the Phoenix, but what a blow. We just spoke yeah. about it, Will and uh, Dino, earlier with the coach, Rudin, who did an amazing job he taking did. up the, the reins at Western. It's going to be half a rough hook, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, it's a tough job for him, you know, going in with, with with that type of thing he's got to deal with from day one. But look, I think he's going to be a good coach of a tie, and uh, hopefully, you know, he'll... Uh, you will weave some magic, and you never know. You, they could, you know, they've got some good young players there, so who knows? And Roy Krishna takes his chance in uh, in South Korea. It can go one or two ways. Some people, uh, players we've seen, have found the transition to uh, both the cultural and the football culture uh, in North Asia really tough to, to adjust. Yeah. Others like Sasha Ogonowski have thrived on it they and did, become yeah. Robbie well, Cornplay thrived on it and become really good players as a consequence. So it's a mental, well, it's a mental approach of how it, how, you, how you start. I think yeah. you have to bad start. And you're away from home, but if you get a good start, yeah, anything can happen. And Isaias' contribution has been superb. Yeah, he's great, pro, great pro, really yeah. great pro, good leader. No, he's been superb for the game. And it's you know one of the rare things about his stay, six years with the one club as a as an international player, given the, the nature of contracts and salary caps within the A League, very hard to hang on to players. But United held him onto him for six years and he becomes something of a club legend as a no, consequence. Superb. Western United Stadium development plans already appear behind schedule, with FFA chief Gregor Rourke stating they don't expect the Wyndham Stadium to be complete until 2022-23. United had initially planned to spend just two seasons at Cadinia Park and move in for the 21. 2022 season, but not a shovel of dirt has yet been turned on the project. Stadiums always take a little bit longer than expected, but uh, it was imperative to the bid that the stadium would be built and this can't be allowed to drag out. No, it can't, and uh, it's not great for the franchise's relationship with the local community, which is absolutely crucial to its success. Playing in Geelong is not ideal no. for one year. Playing there for three years is, is perilous. It is. I mean, you know, there's no attraction at all. 
So they're going to get that moving quick smart. Michelle Heyman has announced her retirement from the Matildas, citing mental health issues. Heyman is a veteran of two World Cups but was not selected for Ante Milicic's 2019 squad. She's revealed she's battled anxiety during her time uh, in the national team setup. She retires with 20 Matildas goals across 61 appearances, so well done to Michelle on a fantastic national team career and all the best for the future. Yeah, she was hoping to make this squad. It didn't quite happen for her, and uh, now she's called time, didn't I? Yeah, look, it, I think everybody knows, everybody knows, really, with regards to where they're, whether it's a mental thing or if, if it's a physical thing, and uh, either way, I think you've just got to just do what's best for you, your family, and, and, and who's around you. And in, in terms of uh, you know the, the mental health issue, increasingly in sport, we're hearing more and more professional sports people actually admitting that mental health has been a real challenge for them, uh, and that's a healthy thing. But do you think in the past, you know, the, because it was taboo, it was just as prevalent, we just didn't talk about yeah, it? Yeah, without doubt. There's there's no doubt about that. Again, it's proven it, you know, and, you know, you look at individuals you've bumped across the journey of your career and wondered, you know, were they in a good place or not? Um, you know, I've had one who's really close, who's a great footballer and, you know, he's gone to some really dark places, but, you know, the good news is he's back on track, but, you know, he's older than me, he'd be around 60 now, um, but super player, played in the National League and, you know, it, anyone can, you know, there's, there's no rules with this, uh, with this, it's, it's really, it's, how you deal with it and hopefully you get through it and, and you have a good life. And you're involved with an NPL club now, Pasco Vale. The yeah. club's much better at, you know, being uh, in direct contact with players and, and checking in on them to make sure that they're they're in a good place. I, I think I think they do to a degree. I mean, we have a doctor at the club every, every week, uh, but again, he's not a psychiatrist, he's a doctor. Um, but look, I, I still think it's some area for improvement at, at NPL level. I mean, I'm not quite... I think at A-League, I think they've got quite a, a lot of that covered. Uh, but at NPL, I think as part of this growth of Australian football, we need to get better at that as well. Well, and thanks for that, and thanks for the news, and you'll return uh, in about an hour's time with uh, the second part of the news and uh, Socceroos Central as well. It is Box to Box on Macquarie uh, and NTS Radio. Francis Leach and Dean Hennessy here. Coming up in a moment, we'll be back with Heather Garrick to check in uh, and see how that Matilda's legend is feeling about the national team as it heads to the World Cup. Box to Box. Can you believe it? The Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The king of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Box to Box, Francis Leach here for Rob Gilbert, Ed and Michael Edley's also on the road for the Women's World Cup. Dean Hennessy is with me as well and we are going to be talking Matildas because the Women's World Cup starts next week and Australia's national women's team have uh, quite the challenge ahead of them but also an opportunity of a lifetime to challenge for women's football's biggest prize. Somebody who knows all about that challenge, who played 130 times for her national uh, team is Heather Garriak. She's a Matildas legend and she joins us here on Box to Box on uh, this evening. G'day, Heather, how are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. How excited are you for this particular tournament? What, what's your feeling going in? Yeah, super excited. I guess um, more excited than any other tournament, um, especially going in. And, and we really are contenders to win this World Cup. Can you talk to me about you know when you first played for the Matildas and your memories of that, and when you look at what the girls uh, are doing now, the, the, the vast difference in in but, oh, the expectation, the standard of the of the conditions you played in, the expectations that you had to actually pay your own way, all of those yep. things is it almost unrecognisable to you? Yeah, it is. Um, the game has certainly grown so much, and that's just I guess a credit to 
the success of, of the recent um, times, the last several years, have been really successful, uh, in particular our first win against the USA. But, yeah, it, it, it's been a long journey, especially for the Matildas that played before me as well. So it was them paving the way and then us paving the way and now... These Matildas are just such a great team and a team that is really expected to achieve excellence at the World Cup. So it's just so nice to see that a little older nation like Australia is is a contender at a, at a World Cup. Heather, it's Dean here. It's a similar, how are you? Welcome. We get back to the show again. Thanks, Dean. Just on maybe on the same lines as just what we were just talking there is, you know, like when you first started and then you went into games and then into tournaments. How how far into your career was it where you felt you went from being one of the younger players, learning the ropes at international football, to then becoming one of the, you know, one of the more experienced ones where you're actually helping players in and around you? I debuted at a really young age and, and was was always a benchy player in the first several years of playing for the national team, which was always good for me because I earned my stripes and I yep. think that's how it should be. And then playing, obviously, the Olympic Games and then the 2003 World Cup. And it wasn't until, I think, the 2007 World Cup where we had older players playing like your Cheryl Salisbury's and your Di Alligiches, but it was really important for players like myself who were youngish to be able to stand up and, and help that younger generation coming through. So it was around the 2007 mark yeah. and then going into, into 2011 most definitely, which I think it's eight players of the 2011 World Cup team, maybe even more. So based on that, from looking at the current squad, we, you know, we're just, I'm just looking at a, a, a few stats here that we've got. We've got a certain amount of late women uh, that are going to their fourth major tournament, and then there's a vast majority, or, or at least one, two, th- there's about six are going to their third major tournament. So I suppose we class them as experienced now. Yeah, most definitely, and they are. And uh, we talk about the 2011 um, World Cup, which was in Germany, and we got out of our group and... and um, we were, we were really good at that tournament and then we played against Sweden and, and Sweden um, Sweden were just too good for us. But players like Caitlin Ford, Sam Kerr, Tamika, Yalev, Elise Keller-Knight, they were all at that tournament. Yep. So mm. the first ever tournament. So for them to experience Germany, especially a European country, and that was an exceptional World Cup um, put on by the Germans just after the Men's World Cup. So to get their first World Cup under in Germany to now, which is their third World Cup, we are in prime form. Heather Garrick is with us here on Box to Box, talking about the Matildas as they head to France for the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup. Uh, just talking about being a young player, Mary Fowler's been picked in this squad. Heather, you said you debuted uh, in the National Colours as a young player. How young is too young, do you think, to uh, to include someone in the squad? There's been a bit of debate around that. The Matildas have a long history of giving young women an opportunity, regardless of age. If you're good enough you, to play, it doesn't matter what your your, uh, your birth certificate says. Do you subscribe to that idea? Yeah, well, I think it's a reflection of the development in our country. And as you can see, we have young players debuting because there's not enough depth in Australia, let's face it. So if Mary Fowler's good enough at the age of 15 or 16 to play at a World Cup, then that's saying something about our growth and development uh, from a young age. And 
you look at America, it's very rare that you see a player under the age of 18 debuting for their country. That's just fact. It's a reflection of the depth and the number of uh, uh, talented uh, players they've got available to them. Heather, looking at uh, the, the squad and the players that uh, have come through the uh, the W League and have, uh, you know, the W League, one of the best women's football competitions uh, in, on the globe, and we're producing players of, of world-class quality, uh, are you seeing that translated into form in the national team? Yes, most definitely. I, I think um, having the Westfields W League was a, is fantastic. Um, that was straight after or a couple of years after the 2007 World Cup. And just for these players to be able to play for clubs, at clubs, and to be under pressure and to play in front of our home, home crowds and in front of friends and family is really important. And that, in turn, only, only grows depth, even though I just spoke about not having too much depth. It's still... Um, it still highlights different players and players are able to perform at their best in the W League competition and get picked up for national team spots. Heather, looking forward to match day one. Uh, obviously, it's it's a massive game, the first game of a, of a knockout where you've got the three games to, you know, amount the points and finish either first or second. But from Australia's point of view, it, Italy a good one to get first based on... Would you have had it any different if you could have chosen it out the hat? Would you have had Brazil or Jamaica, or does Italy fit nicely? No, I think Italy fits nicely. I think we're going to do really, really well against Italy, um, even though they're a tough nation. And when we talk about leagues, the Italians like Juventus coming into in, into um, the league and uh, the Italian league and pumping a lot of money into, into their league, um, I think they will be exceptional. But in saying that, I just think the Matildas, We'll hit the ground running, and I, I really think um, we'll get a win against Italy. Um, we'll beat the Brazilians finally at a, at a major tournament, and I think it's going to be tough against the Jamaicans because they're very, very unpredictable. They've just played Scotland the last couple of days. Yeah, we heard that. And they gave them a really good run for their money, and uh, their striker Shaw <laughs> is an outstanding player, outstanding player. So. Um, it's gonna it's gonna be a, a tough challenge. Um, probably come into the third game. That's when you start to use the depth of your team and your your your, your bench and different things like that. So it's important times that third game. You know all too well about building squads, building some camaraderie among squads, and also trust within the squad and the and the coach as the coach at Canberra United in the W League. Ante Milicic has only taken on this job at the start of this year. Do you think he's had enough time to do that? And, and given that how tumultuous all that was, do you have any concerns that uh, that change in the leadership within the Matildas camp will will, um, will be something that might play, you know be something of a, a negative heading into this tournament? Very much so. It's always going to be tough when you come into a tournament and you've only got five months to prepare. And he's only had a couple of games under his belt. So the Netherlands game in a couple of days' time is going to be a real important one for the Matildas. So from a culture point of view, of course the players are going to buy in. They've got a World Cup and a, and a World Cup trophy to play for. My concern is is that we're playing for, for such a major in such a major tournament is if things don't go well, then it's tough to come back from adversity, especially for what they've formed through recently. Heather Garrick is with us here on Box to Box, talking about the Matildas and their upcoming World Cup adventures in France. We've got one of the world's best in Sam Kerr. This is her time to shine in many ways. She's come close to winning the Ballon d'Or a couple of times now and uh, hasn't been able to, to land... Uh, women's football's greatest prize. Is there too much pressure on her, Heather? Or do you think that she's the sort of player and sort of character that just uh, thrives on it? 
she is a great character and she's extremely laid back and she's got so much swagger and she's been under so much pressure to perform and to knock goals away and she's risen for that. But she has risen in non-major tournaments. Uh, I don't think she scored a goal at a World Cup before. But in saying that, I have full faith in Semi that she can lead the team and she can be a great captain and a player that, that really makes a difference at this World Cup. Heather, enjoy the tournament. It's going to be uh, very exciting and, and just hope that uh, the Matildas can uh, do something that uh, they will uh, be remembered for for a lifetime and beyond if they can win this trophy in France this coming summer in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Thanks for being on Box to Box. Thank you, and go the Matildas. Go the Matildas, thanks, Heather. <laughs> Matildas legend Heather Garrick there with us here on Box to Box. Francis Leach and Dean Hennessy with you talking all things football. Coming up, Richard Bayless from Optus Sports joins us. It's Champions League final weekend to Madrid, Liverpool, Tottenham Hotspur. It promises to be a classic. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King, the king of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Box to Box, the show that is everything football and football never stops. Dean Hennessy, uh, we have what is going to be a Champions League final for the ages in the offing and two teams that have enormous attraction, enormous fan power here in Australia facing off in what could be a classic final, Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur. Should be a cracker. I mean, both of, uh, especially if you look at both of them, they only got through on goal difference from their group stages, if you remember, that far away. Uh, but then they've gone on an unbelievable run, and obviously Tottenham finishing, you know, in that top four spot, but also Liverpool going so close in the league to, you know, Manchester City. So I think it could be an absolute cracker. And both had fairy tale semi-final stories to tell. One will live the fairy tale, one will have their heart broken on the weekend. Richard Bayless is from Optus Sports. He is uh, part of the team that will be delivering coverage of the Champions League final on Sunday morning, and he joins us here on Box to Box. G'day, Richard. How are you? Hello, gents. I'm uh, I'm very good. I'm somewhat uh, tired from watching the Europa League final, as I'm guessing uh, you are as well, Francis. But I think uh, it's not only about getting up early for Australian viewers. It's also the fact that it was quite a draining watch. I think. Let's hope the Champions League final isn't quite like that. <laughs> it was quite draining for me. I think I ended up behind the couch for the last ten minutes, hoping it would just finish. Uh, it wasn't. We might talk more about that one later. But it, this final has everything for for fans of the Premier League, but uh, also for fans of uh, two clubs, as I said, Richard, that have enormous pulling power in Australia. They've always been really popular. Liverpool, we know, uh, can fill a stadium anywhere in the world, but they do that twice over here in Australia, and Tottenham uh, similarly. Yeah, absolutely. We've noticed at Optus Sport that, you know, with Liverpool, any time they're involved, the viewership is outrageous. They are easily the best-supported club in England, if not European football or world football, potentially, in Australia. Tottenham are probably fourth or fifth on that list, but it seems like over the last couple of weeks, more and more Spurs fans have uh, come out uh, where, from wherever they've been hiding over the past couple of decades. It's been a pretty barren run, of course, for them, and they potentially are the more remarkable story, given that they haven't spent any money in two transfer windows. They've just paid for this amazing stadium. I've been to a couple of games already at the new Tottenham Hotspur ground. It's phenomenal. It's one of the best grounds in world football. But it's put them in a situation financially where they haven't really been able to, nor will they be able to spend money on players. So you think about how much pressure and money has been put on clubs like PSG and Manchester City to go all the way and win the Champions League. And it's little old Tottenham, after only having one point after three matches in the group stage, they go all the way after that remarkable comeback in the semi. So, you know, that's a great story in itself. Whereas for Liverpool, you know, the weight of expectation now for them as well, given they were in the final last year, they're in a Europa League final before that. Jurgen Klopp yet to win silverware either. They'll go in as big favourites, but in a final, as we know, anything can happen. 
Uh, Richard, um, obviously you've been to the stadium you just mentioned. How good is it and how good is that, uh, the one behind the goal where I think it uh, stands 17,000? So it, is it because of just the way it's been designed that really gets the atmosphere kept into the stadium? I think so. As soon as you walk sort of in from uh, the concourse, it just feels really close. And it actually reminded me a lot of, you know, the stadium designs in the States, uh, you know, the big yep, NFL yeah, or the college football yeah, grounds. Yeah. yeah, it just feels, because it's quite enclosed as well, which is great for the noise. And that wall you mentioned, that one end that's modelled on the yellow wall at Dortmund, that is, uh, it's phenomenal. It's like one tier. It's massive. And, uh, you know, the corporate facilities there as well, I know that's not what it's about, but it might very well be about that for Tottenham trying to recoup some of that money over the next few years. You know, it's got everything. It's bells and whistles. You know, it's like a spaceship in there. And I think once Tottenham feel like that's home because it's still kind of bright and shiny and new, I think they'll, uh, they'll be the envy of a lot of clubs, not just in England, but around the world as well. So the final offers them an opportunity to, uh, to start their tenure in their new home as, as European champions. It's something they couldn't have dreamed of, given, as you said, the restrictions on the squad and Pochettino not signing an outfield player or any player in the last uh, summer transfer window. How have they managed to do it? I mean, what is it about Maurizio Pochettino which has allowed him to keep this squad together? He's had injuries. I mean, Harry Kane hasn't played for two months and he says he's fit for the final, but would you risk him? That's another question. Yeah, Dele Alli as De- well. Yeah, there have been so many of them. What do you reckon, Richard? What's been the key to Pochettino's success with this squad, which has you know, had to uh, fight on all fronts with limited resources? Well, I was uh, at the semi-final, uh, both legs of the semi-final, and I was lucky enough to be standing pitch side with John Aloisi when that goal went in. Lucas Moura's third went in, and it was one of the most remarkable things I can ever remember seeing in a stadium, just the sound and or how it just fell flat, essentially, and just the tension in, in the air. It was eerie, if you like. But the fact that that was turned around in that 45 minutes, it has to all come down to Pochettino, doesn't it? The fact that... He can he can make that happen in a game where seemingly they're in all sorts. And doing it with players that... And this is the key, I think. It's the fact that he's doing it with players that 12, 18 months ago you look at and say, yeah, they're pretty ordinary. I mean, Fernando Llorente from Swansea didn't really set the world alight there, nor in Spain before that, really. Lucas Moura was on the out at PSG. Deli Alley's actually had a pretty poor season, I think. You know, there are a lot of players in there, and some of the younger guys as well that are more squad players. I'm thinking of the, the two fullbacks or the four fullbacks. You know, there are guys in that squad that I don't think would be world beaters anywhere else, but I think it's probably the way that Pochettino manages to put his arm around them. He's clearly a very good man manager and you see the way he reacted with the players on the pitch after that semi-final the way they were hugging like they were they were family you know like they just won the champions league you can tell it's a really tight-knit unit which i guess there's an argument to be formed that you can go out and spend all the money you want on players but you can't replicate the feeling of creating a family within a squad and that's what a lot of people will be trying to study if Tottenham go all the way and win the Champions League. With uh, Tottenham as well, especially like with the, the injuries to Deli Alley and also to Harry Kane, it's been interesting that there's now a little bit of a debate where is it better where they play the way they do with out Harry Kane, and I know that's an outrageous statement. Well, Morris scores a hat trick in the semi final, exactly might get right. dropped. Exactly right, and <laughs> it's just amazing. I mean, if you look at the dynamics of it, um, they were really, really good in that comeback in that second half. Um, and, and it's just an interesting proposition is, you know, do do they bring him in and start him, which most punters would say, yes, we'll do. Or do we start him on the bench, knowing full well that if it's not working, you can bring him off and it's a, obviously another dynamic. Mm. It's a fascinating one because I think there's a, there's a school of thought that says that if he's not fit and he's on the bench and you have to turn to Harry Kane off the bench, you know, is that more of a risk? And are you using an option that's, you know, clearly not a, not a favourable one? I feel as though if he's any near 
remotely fit, I think Kane pretty much has to start. And it's probably a more powerful position to have someone like a Lucas Moura coming off the bench, you know, because that would probably, you know, set hearts racing amongst the Liverpool players if you see someone in that kind of form coming off the bench. Whereas if you've got a Harry Kane that's clearly not at his best, you'd think Liverpool might be able to contain him. That said, he's such a talisman and maybe it'll strike that extra fear into him. But I think, that's why I say, I think if he's even remotely close to fully fit, I reckon he'll play Harry Kane. But it's a weird position for Tottenham as well, because remember, apart from that second half where they scored three goals against Ajax, they haven't been able to buy a goal for about mm. three months, it seems. They've been in really poor form. They, they finished the season really badly. I mean, the, the win against Manchester City was unbelievable in the Champions League, but pretty much from that point onwards, they really struggled in front of goal. Yes, they missed Kane, but they do have those players to to create. So I think there are actually a lot of questions around whether Kane plays or not, regardless of whether he's fit, because we know that um, Son Young min is arguably a better player without Kane there as well. So I can't wait to see that team lineup because, um, you know, that will really set the tone for the way the Pochettino plans to go about it, obviously. Richard Bayless is with us from Optus Sports. They were bringing you full coverage of the Champions League final from Madrid between Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur Sunday morning. I think it's a 4am uh, proceedings get underway our time. Is that right, Richard? Yeah, we're, we're on air 4am an hour before kickoff. We've got a fair bit planned and a whole heap to talk about. So, um, you know, for anyone in Australia, I think you can probably, um, you've got two options. You can either set the alarm and get up early or you can push all the way through. I think, um, you know, either way, I think there'll be plenty of fans of the respective clubs doing the latter. And that's 4am uh, Australian Eastern uh, Standard Time too. So adjust your clocks around the country. Let's talk about Liverpool. Uh, 97 points they finished the Premier League uh, with any other season that wins you the title in a canter probably. Uh, an extraordinary year. You know what you're going to get from them uh, because of the way that they've played with such consistency, vibrancy and dare throughout the year. And speaking of great management, Klopp is obviously now uh, reaching legendary status. But the one thing he hasn't done, even in his time at Borussia Dortmund, and he made the final of the Champions League there, and he's gone toe-to-toe with Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga year after year in that role, is to win a big European trophy like this. This is his moment. The Liverpool dynamic is interesting. This is the best season that they've had Dino in 30 years. Oh, it does. Yeah, I mean... What if they end with no trophies? So they go in under an enormous pressure to, to actually complete the, the mission here, don't they? Well, they do. I mean, the expectation, I suppose, when he first came into the job, and I think he's bridged the gap, obviously. The gap last year was massive to Manchester City. Obviously, it was neck and neck all the way back. But for me, I think he's done a fabulous job. I think they are the team in form going into this particular tie. Uh, and I really hope for, for Liverpool's sake to get uh, Liverpool getting back on the map from where I grew up, watching them win European Cup finals when I was a kid. I just think Liverpool are prime for this and I think they won't let this one slip. Richard, your perspective on it, having uh, you know watched the, the season in detail right throughout, uh, what weakness does Liverpool have, if any at all? They beat Tottenham twice throughout the Premier League season, so they'll feel they've got their measure. Yeah, I think there'll be enormous pressure on Liverpool for those reasons you mentioned, because they were so good in the Premier League to only lose once, and of course by millimetres as well against Manchester City. You know, they were so close to going through undefeated and winning that elusive Premier League title. But for the first time, and you mentioned the fact that Jurgen Klopp has sort of had the monkey on his back when it comes to the Champions League or European finals. For the first time, he'll, he'll definitely go in with his side as favourite. So that you know, adds to the expectation of pressure that will come from within the squad and amongst all the fans globally of Liverpool, but also, you know, the bookies will have Liverpool favourites. All logic and all form points towards Liverpool going in and bossing this game. If they play their best, there's a very good argument that says that Tottenham probably just don't have the weapons to be able to deal with that. So it'll be really fascinating to see. We know how they'll approach it in terms of their style of play. They'll press high, they'll come out like bulls at a gate, no doubt, from the start. But whether or not they can 
you know, handle that extra bit of pressure. They had absolutely nothing to lose in that second leg against Barcelona. But it's going to be a different scenario, isn't it, in a one-off uh, final match. So, yeah, this is this is what makes it so interesting for me because, you know, the players as well up front for, for Liverpool, the front three, you say, at their best, they're amazing. But at what point of this season were all three of them at their best? You know, we haven't seen Salah, Firmino and Mane really click together at any point. So that shows they do have improvement. And if things don't go their way, if they don't win this trophy, even though there'll be a lot of pressure on Jurgen Klopp afterwards, no doubt, you know, there's still plenty of upside in this side. I think next season there's no reason why they can't go a step further in the league and go and win more trophies as well, hopefully, in Europe. Great to talk to you, Richard. It's going to be a, a really uh, compelling final, whichever way, full of drama and romance. And uh, we can catch it all on Optus Sport this weekend before we tick over again and head off to the Women's World Cup, which starts right hot on its heels. That's it. It never ends. How good is it? <laughs> <laughs> Richard Bayless, Optus Sports, talking to us about the Champions League final here on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you the Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King, the king of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Talking all things football and coming up in a moment, Dino's going to walk us through group by group the Women's World Cup with uh, Willem as well. Uh, but Dino, are you like me, running out of space at home? Yeah, well, look, you know, you can read my mind because... You just have to call Storage King. Right now, during the month of June, you'll get one month storage for free. That's right, absolutely free. So whether you're moving house, downsizing, renovating, relocating, or the office is too small, you're running an online business and you just don't need a shop front, Storage King has the answer. Storage King even has a crack team, an absolute crack team of storage professionals on hand to make life easy. And with stores everywhere, there's one just around the corner. Storage King, the king of storage Moving and more, moving during June and get one month storage for free. Superb. Visit storageking.com.au to find your nearest store. It is box to box, talking all things football as well as storage. With Dean Hennessy, Francis Leach here, Rob Gilbert and Michael Ledgley are on the bench this week. Uh, but they'll be back very, very soon. Uh, the Women's World Cup. Yeah, we 24 we- teams go in. Let's have a look at them. Well, let's, it's, let's it's, break it's, it down. Well, it is. It's, we'll look at the groups, I think. Yep. Obviously, the games aren't next week. They're the week after or starting next weekend. But I think what we'll do is just look at the, the groupings and where everyone's basically facing, how ranked they are in the current world ranking in women's football. So we'll start off with Group A. And uh, we have France, who are ranked four, with Norway 12. Um, South Korea 14 and Nigeria 38. So I think that's an interesting group. It's relatively tight, um, but you know what it's like in these things. I mean, World Cups are here to make uh, to, to make fools of everybody. Um, but Group A, I think France are obviously the favourites, and I think then it's a toss up possibly between 12 and 14. So Norway uh, also, you know, ranked very highly and. Uh... And South Korea, the Asian representative in that group, and the wild card is Nigeria because African football such a wonderful flair. And often we don't know a lot about the we players coming that's into right. the tournament, and that's uh, uh, the nature of that's some of the that's part of the beauty of the game because they they play uh, in uh, in leagues that we don't get to see, and therefore the talent is is unspotted and you very hard to plan exactly for right. as well, wouldn't it be? And then obviously we go to Group B. Uh, obviously Germany, uh, they're always good with the men, but obviously they're very good with the women as well. Rank number two. Rank number two. And then we've got Spain, 13. Uh, the Chinese at uh, 16. And then South Africa, 49. So 
again, you would expect Germany to, to proceed through to the next round. And then it again might be between Spain and China. For that uh, all-important second spot? I know the Germans are really keen to do well. They put out an ad campaign, the German women, saying, you love the men's teams, but you don't even know our names. So they're, they're looking to make a bit of a statement and break into the, the German mainstream sort of conscience. Brilliant. Well, there's an opportunity to do that for sure. All importantly, Group C, because that's where the Matildas are. Well, this is the one. Uh, it's, it's ranked in one to four. So it's Italy 15. That's their ranking. Brazil in uh, with ranking of 10. Australia uh, a six. And we have Jamaica in 53rd spot. So I think we've had a little bit of work as well. Um, if we were to win the group or actually finish second, who we would play it, you know, it, once we get through the group stage, if we get through the group stage, which so, hopefully we... Yeah, spot on, Dino. So if the Matildas finish second, we will play... It's quite straightforward. We play the runners-up of Group A. So that looks likely to be... Uh, sorry, where's my Group A? France or Norway? Well, you'd think France would, would sew that group up relatively comfortably. So then it'd be out of Norway or South Korea, possibly. But if the Matildas win our group, we will play a third-place side from either Group A, B or F. So that could be third, so that again could be uh, Norway, South Korea or Nigeria. It could be from Group B, it could be anyone, Spain, Germany, China or South Africa. And from Group F, you'd expect the United States to sign up that group. So it could be Sweden, Chile or even Thailand as another wild card down there. So what we're talking about is that uh, the top two teams in each group go through, then there are four spots left open for the best performed teams that finish third. Spot on. So 24-team tournament and then a round of 16. So the four best-placed third uh places uh lucky losers if you like and they remain in the tournament so that, that'll be interesting how that plays out Absolutely. as well on, on goal difference yeah, and, and goal points. difference and yep. then that's again you know you look at the champions league the two finalists that are going to play the champions league were only through on goal difference we uh, saw it at the asian cup this year going in i think we thought oh that might dilute the quality a little bit around a 16 maybe a few poorer teams will make it through but it kept it fairly enthralling and engaging and, and it gives everyone a little you know stories. like if you have a bad start you know it's that first game you lose it and then you're going oh we're under the cosh but then you just squeeze in with a bit of momentum having those two games. You never know with that. You and it know? keeps teams like... Apps keeps everybody on their toes. Yeah, like South Africa, Nigeria, uh, Jamaica, possibilities to yeah, pull a fairy tale. What it also does is that there are no dead rubbers in the third group game. And that's what you want. Yeah. You, you want that. You don't want the game to be just, well, what's the point of playing it, you know? Everyone's still playing for an opportunity. Group D, England will be uh, will be the, the favourites here. This English team, you know, you know, believe under Phil Neville they, they can win the World Cup. Well, Phil Neville obviously at the helm, um, and then obviously Scotland have, have got there as well. And uh, England v Scotland. England v Scotland. <laughs> I remember growing up watching lots of those games. Uh, and then obviously Argentina, 37 now. I don't care what you say, whether they're men or women. Argentina will produce decent talent. Um, I think didn't we play Argentina last year? And there was there was there was, was it last year in a couple of the friendlies? Did we? Play? Yeah, it could have been possibility. I think we did, um, and also Japan uh, seventh ranked. So, you know, that's that's not an easy group. That I think there's a there's there's a test there. But I think I definitely think England will go through. But it's really who goes through with them. Uh, so that's a really big one for, for the romantic nature of this tournament, having England play Scotland in the group stage as well. For Group E, and uh, this will be pretty tight too because uh, the Dutch and the Canadians are both expected to do well at this tournament. Well, Netherlands are rated, rated at third in the world and Canada in five. So they, you know, they're in the top top six, you know, along with Australia. Um, and then New Zealand at 19. Um, they've had, I think they won yesterday, was it five? 
they won five nil in a in a friendly and then you've got cameroon on uh, 46 so that's that's most most probably the outsider but again you just don't know what you're going to get with cameroon it'll be a fascinating tune-up for the matildas against the oranje vrouwen as they're known in holland uh third versus sixth that'll be sunday night our time so just before the champions league final so it is a possibility to stay up and go all the way through let's hope they all get through with that injury i guess that's the key thing yeah well that's right no one wants to pick up a, a uh, knock ahead of the opening group game in the tournament and especially if you're on the fringes of it and you're trying to prove yourself for it and you do that a little bit extra that's always the always the death knell in that when you know if you get a little niggly injury and it just affects your whole tournament group f and the united states are here this is the defending champions well, well exactly the defending champions plus ranked number one in the world the usva uh sweden in ninth um and then you've got two teams not a million miles away thailand in 34th spot and chile in 39th spot so. when you think about that because chile played against the matildas and beat them in penrith and then That's gave right. them a really hard time in the in the first half of the game in newcastle in the second match the matildas uh, got into the groove late in that match and scored three or four goals in the second half to win they're ranked 39th in the world but they they ran the matildas close so it shows that those rankings can be deceptive if a team is playing well and, and in good form so uh that, that that's an interesting group so what we're going to be doing as well, obviously, um, we've, we've talked off the show, um, but what we're going to do now is, and we want you obviously heavily involved, uh, is that we're going to have votes. And uh, Willem, you can be in it as well, yep. where we actually work out who's going to finish first, second, and we have a point system. And then whoever, whoever wins it or finishes last has to pay for dinner. Okay. So there's a little bit of... There's story. something in this. And even Nigel is looking like he fancies a little bit of it as well. He's well up for that. So, Will uh, you go first, Dino? Well, I'm not going to do it now. I think we have this week for next week's show. Okay. You, you'll go away and do your homework. Oh, all right. So will Willem. Yep. So will Nigel. Edge and Robbers, certainly. And then we'll come back next week, declare our hand. And then away we go. All right. It's going to be a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, we can't wait for the start of the Women's World Cup. It's Box to Box on Macquarie Radio NTS. Let's have a look now at the squad for the Matildas, Dino. And, uh, you know, it's a... Well, it's a talented squad. There's no doubt about that. And some of them have played a lot of World Cup football. And there are a couple of fresh faces who will be having their first turn at the world's biggest tournament. Well, they will. I mean, I mean I'm looking at... Um... I'm just looking at the, the experience of uh, Lisa Devana, Claire Pogginhorn, uh, Lydia Williams. Uh, they've been to, I think this is going to be their fourth major tournament uh, or fourth World Cup. Um, well, Sam Kerr, Laura Elway, Caitlin Ford, uh, Alison Kel- um, Kellen Knight, uh, Emily uh, Van Egmond, and Tamika Yallop. Um, it says knee, but is she like... She's, she's changed just, her name? Just yeah, she's changed just her name. Okay, so there you go. You got married. Well done. Yep. Congratulations. Not sure, not sure if her wife is in the uh, New Zealand squad, but she's a female New Zealand footballer oh, as well. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That that, that could come interesting if... Uh, <laughs> they play, face if off against they face each other? off again. Is there, you have to do a little bit of work on that. Yeah, not there? too many people would have played World Cup football against their spouse, I wouldn't have No, exactly <laughs> right. So that's, that could be a world's first. Um but I think I think from my point of view, going into major tournaments, whether it's men's or women's football, surely your experience, professionals who've been there, done it, know what it's about. It's most probably more interested on some of the younger players in the team that most probably are going to their first or even second tournament. That that's where you're wanting like maybe early carpenter. I mean, I'm quite impressed with her. Yeah. Um, obviously, Alana, Alana Kennedy's. 
top drawer. Hayley Resso. I, I, I like Hayley Resso as well. I mean, there's anyone else that comes out that maybe jumps at you that you think we could expect something really big? Emily Gilnick's another one. Well, I yeah. think she's the wild card for mine. I Do think yeah, she so? hasn't played as much international football as some of the other girls, but just had a fantastic, uh, been in fantastic form in the W League. And yeah, I, I just think it's a really beautifully balanced squad. There's a lot of. Uh, women who are sort of young in football terms, 23, 24, but they've got an absolute wealth of experience, 50, 60, 70 caps in some of in some instances. Steph Catley, Chloe Legazzo, Tamika Yallop fall into that bracket. And we've also got the older heads, as earlier mentioned, and Mary Fowler at the, uh, at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, does she get on in this World Cup? I'm not too sure, but it's worth taking her for Good the, journey, though, for the experience. Good experience. What a wonderful series against the Dutch in the uh, warm-up game, just to see, you know, Milicic might give yep. her a run-out to see yeah, where she's at. In and have a look, yeah. And what, what's there to lose at this particular point? Be Absolutely. fascinating to watch. Good on you, Willem. And uh, Dino, that's the Matildas and uh, how they're shaping up for the Women's World Cup. We'll talk more about that with Edge in just a little while. You are listening to Box to Box. Now, this is Box to Box with Dean Hennessy and Francis Leach. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The king of storage, moving and more. Welcome back to Box to Box, the show that is everything football on Macquarie Radio, NTS. Francis Leach and Dean Hennessy here. Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley return in the next week or two edges in Paris. We'll catch up with them a bit later on this hour, in fact, uh, for stoppage time to find out how the build-up to the Women's World Cup is uh, building in the French capital. Mark Bosnich to join us in a little while to basically luxuriate at your expense, Dean Hennessy, as Aston Villa returned to the Premier League at the expense of Derby County. Can you imagine when we do that <laughs> and his laugh when he knows that I'm a Derby fan? <laughs> and we'll also uh, look through uh, all things Europe with Dino as well. Uh, that's all ahead of us here on Box to Box. But first, uh, Willem uh, van Denderen is back with the latest news and also with uh, some Socceroos Central stuff as yeah. well, Willem. Yeah, that's right, Francis. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Support the Oliveroos in Thailand next January as they look to qualify for the 2020 Olympics. There wasn't a great deal of action with most domestic seasons finished. However, Tom Rogic managed to lift the Scottish Cup following a 2-1 win over Hearts. Rogic was fairly quiet, but for the opposition, Ryan Edwards was the goalscorer, picking up a loose ball and scoring on 52 minutes. Bernie Abini netted his first goal for John Book Motors in the K-League, coming off the bench to add the fourth goal in a comfortable win. But the man I want to speak about, guys, is Aaron Moy. He's been evaluated at $27 million Australian in the UK. It looks like he will be leaving Huddersfield sooner rather than later so that they can get the money from that and set up for life in the championship. Any, any buyers? Any... Number of clubs linked, as is often the case. No official approaches made as yet, but Wolves, West Ham, Watford, sort of those middle-tier clubs that aren't going to go down. Premier League, they're back in the Premier League. Yeah, oh, back definitely. in the Premier League, certainly. Yeah, yeah. He's, Where do you think he'd be a good fit? He'd be good in Watford. He'd be good in that midfield. Uh, who was the others? Wolverhampton uh, as well. Yeah, look, they were pretty consistent with that yeah. lineup. That that was hard to break into. Who's a very good team. You got West Ham possibility. Could, yeah, well, are they going to lose Declan Rice? Okay, that's going to be, gonna be that, that, that's going to be one of the decisions there, I reckon. Yeah, no, but it's interesting. Yeah. Twenty-seven million quid. Remember, he was sold by Melbourne City to Manchester Parent Club and all yeah. for how many million was it? Two, I think maybe. Two, but then he was on sold for 15 million, which is what they paid for Melbourne Hart in the first place. So they (laughs) recoup their spendings on one player. And they probably get a. I wonder if they would get pick up a a sign on feed like a a, an ad sign uh, because it's being on sold again. I 
Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. the money will keep rolling yeah. in. It always trickles. Well, let's hope he stays in the Premier League because he's shown that he's more than capable of being uh, uh, you know, a contributor at the top level, Willem. Now, the Matildas are, of course, in Eindhoven preparing for their final clash before the World Cup. It's expected that they will fill Phillips Stadion, 35,000 capacity. I've been to Phillips. It's a fantastic stadium. Uh, Matildas over Luik and Alex Chidiak, who of course is not involved, have joined Common Goal, a movement which sees footballers donate a portion of their salaries to charities across the world. It was founded by one Mata and has over 100 members, with Alex Brosk, the first Australian, to partake in 2017. Chidiak and Luik have now become our first female footballers. Uh, to join the organisation, it's raised a total of two million across 34 countries. So Super. fantastic initiative. Yeah, Wamata started this, and uh, I think the idea is that they contribute one percent of their overall yep. income uh, to, to the charity. He's a fascinating character. Yeah, he isn't he? he? Yeah, he's uh, done a lot of work for charity very quietly, uh, growing some, up in some modest player, circumstances some himself. Player as well. Ed and Hazard looks highly likely to leave Chelsea following their Europa League final victory. <laughs> Too late for me. Could have left Baku. last night before the game would have been better. <laughs> Hazard scored <laughs> twice in the four-one win and after the match indicated it would likely be his last game for the Blues. Yeah, I think it's a good buy, but uh, in football you never know. Uh, you know, my my dream was to was to play in Premier League. I did this for, for seven years in one in the biggest club in the world. So now maybe it's time for, for a new challenge. He was brilliant in the final too, Dino. He was. He carved Arsenal apart, particularly in the second half. He's not the only one he's ever carved either. <laughs> Pretty good. So off to Real Madrid, it seems. Looks highly likely with the movements going on there. It looks like there's a spot for him. Been linked there for a long, long time. So she'll go through. And Belgium currently ranked number one in the world. Uh, he's at the peak of his powers. It's interesting because I think two or three seasons ago, he had a, a fairly ordinary year on Mourinho's return. And yeah. it looked like he'd lost the zest for the game a little bit. He had a really poor season. And then he's bounced back to uh, become uh, his quality. Yeah, unbelievable it's player. Now, Francis, I know the result didn't go your way this morning, but oh. I want to talk a bit more about the match in general, uh, in broader circumstances. You were for under fire uh, for the Europa League. Playing it in Baku in a relatively sort of tricky stadium, they presented fans with a bit of a logistical nightmare to get to Azerbaijan. Uh, the decision also possessed a more sinister element, which we discussed last week with the Heinrich Mikatarian situation. Each club was afforded 6,000 tickets, but each returned nearly half of these with only 6,000 Arsenal and Chelsea fans believed to have made the trip. What do we, what do we make of it? Yeah, it was an odd night. Uh, there's no doubt about it. The stadium wasn't uh, built for purpose. It looked like uh, your classic Olympic uh, stadium, stadium yeah. uh, you know, converted to a football stadium. It was half empty. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, UEFA has stretched its boundaries to, to Central Asia. That's where Azerbaijan really is. It's on yeah. the Caspian Sea. It's really, you know, it's not really uh, as Europe as we've known it uh, traditionally. And uh, as a consequence, it was tough to get, very expensive to get there, apparently. There weren't too many flights. Oh, no, there wasn't. Yeah, the there was no, there was no direct flight no. from England, certainly. I mean, people were taking two and three days to get there. Yeah, so it was not ideal, and I think that they'll have to revisit the decision to, to hold the tournament uh, in a place like Baku. Although, you know, it's it's a very Western Central idea of what football should be. That of course. It, you know, you know, but they're, they're members of the UEFA, the clubs compete in those leagues. I mean, Carabag played in the Europa League this year. Uh, that's the home club of the stadium, the stadium of the, uh, that plays there, uh, the team that plays there. So, you know, they're entitled to participate. They've just got to be more uh, welcoming and uh, more open yeah. for fans yeah. and, and for clubs. Newcastle United looks set to be acquired by the Bin Zayed Group of Abu Dhabi, with current owner Mike Ashley believed to have agreed a deal to sell the club. Oh, they'll be partying in the yeah. streets of Ashley's Newcastle. Very Ashley unpopular out. figure across his 12 years with United. Oh. Mohammed Bin Zayed Al Nayan looks set to take over at St James's Park. Sheikh Mohammed is the cousin of Manchester City owner Sheikh Manzoor, although it has been reported official paperwork and evidence of funds is yet to be provided to the Premier League. 
they will be uh, they will be praying that that happens because they do not like Mike Ashley and they, they don't. couldn't wait to see the back of him. But interestingly, I mean, if increasingly football's become uh, the plaything of the super rich and there's real problems with that, and I think there's real ethical problems with where that money comes from and how it's used. But in a pure footballing sense, if someone can put some money in at St James's Park, given the stature of that football club, unbelievably sporty club. That they could, you know, the sleeping giant well, could awake. The, the secret with this one as well is they've got a great stadium, 52,000, 54,000. Fills every out, week. Out, and then they go, oh, do you need a new manager? No, no, you've got one. You've got yeah, a really good yeah. manager. Who's Amazing that he stays yeah, there, given yeah, the circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Rafa. So then again, give him some money to go and spend so he can actually really make... And look, they could be massive. They've, they've got everything there. Yeah. And It's a good it, buy if you've got would, the money, isn't oh, it? Oh, without doubt. It Watch was, this space, Willem. I was fortunate enough to get there last year and the fans are in love with Benitez. So yeah. he could be a very popular man very quickly if you could come in and, and sew him up. A number of La Liga and Segunda Division players have been arrested in Spain following a police investigation into match fixing. Yeah, it's expected guess. 11 people will be detained in total with three matches from across Spain's top three divisions under investigation. In one instance, more than 14 times the usual amount of money was placed on an outcome. Presidents and directors of a club are also under arrest. It's looking like a bit of an ugly situation. And it's a classic profile of what happens with uh, match fixing. It's often not the top tier of any particular of sport, Love but it. those players who are just a, uh, a rung down, who might be more financially vulnerable, who can be tempted into match fixing and, and taking, you know, taking the cash for, for compromising their sport. I mean, we had it here in Australia. Yeah. Here in Melbourne, uh, yeah. with, in, the, yep. uh, in the lower leagues as well. And so that's a really bad look for that the game. That was a particular Melbourne City... Uh, game, I think. Was it Dandenong Thunder? Yeah, I think it was. And just a final one, guys. Now, Dean, we spoke last week of Ada Hegerberg, widely acclaimed as the best female footballer in the world. Unfortunately, she won't be at the World Cup with Norway. She's on an indefinite ban from international football. She takes umbrage at the lack of equality between men's and women's football, and this seems fair enough on the surface. However, interestingly enough, Norway in 2017 agreed parity of pay between their male and female players and are lauded as world leaders in this area. Hegerberg refuses to elaborate further on why what she additionally would require to turn to the national team. So that's a real shame. That's a women's World Cup. They saw me. I mean, I don't understand it. So in 2017, is she digging her heels in? She is, and she's been asked multiple times, "What more would you like to see?" The men, I think, dropped nearly 100,000 Australian in sponsorship to have their uh, pay on parity with the women, and yeah, she's continuing. Uh, to not want to participate. It's a real uh, tragedy for the, the competition, I think, in the long term for her as well to miss this particular tournament. But the show will go on without her, though. There always does. There's always someone to replace someone, unfortunately, in there this is, game. Here yeah. indeed. Hey, Will, thank you very much. Thank you. Will and Vander Denneren with us here with the latest news from Soccer Central and around the world. It is Box to Box. And Francis Leach sitting in for Rob Gilbert and Michael Leach here with Dean Hennessy on Macquarie Radio NTS. Coming up in just a moment, Mark Bosnich and the return of Aston Villa to the Premier League. Box to Box. The Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King, the king of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. That's right, Box to Box, the show that is everything football, Macquarie Radio, NTS, Francis Leach in uh, for Rob Gilbert and also for Michael Edgley and Dean Hennessy here as well. Dino is just uh, a little bit crestfallen. He's still wearing the pain. Of... A little bit flat. It's not a week yet. So it's uh, <laughs> after a week, I'll be all right. <laughs> the Rams getting shorn in the uh, in the playoff final at Wembley by uh, Aston Villa, who, after failing to get there last year in the playoff final, are back in the Premier League. And one man who's very, very happy about that is uh, Aston Villa legend and former Socceroos star, Mark Bosnich, who joins us here. Bozza, how are you going? 
Good evening, chaps. How are you? Uh, I'm okay, Dino. Not so. Well, I'm, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dino. I know. Sorry, killer, man. isn't it? Eh? Killer. <laughs> hey, you know, it was quite funny, though. We, we had Peter with on last week. Yeah. And obviously, we know what Pete's done, you know, with the European yeah. Cups and all that. And he's, he's been kind to this show. He comes on a hell of a lot. And we always catch up with him when we go back to England. Uh, but look, to be fair, Aston Villa were the better team on the day. However, they were waning really, really late in the game, Bozza. You know they were. And <laughs> but if it had gone extra time, it could have been well, curtains. It nearly, it nearly went to extra time. Oh, no. seven minutes of overtime. That was like extra time. It was. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's great for Villa to be back in the Premier League, yeah. isn't it? Because a club of that stature, uh, you know, you know, needs to find its way back to the top tier. Well, it is, and and like I, I said this to a lot of people, and look, it's it's I, I, it's no sympathy for Dina for Derby fans, obviously, and no sort of you could say bonus or whatever. But in, from a Villa perspective, you know there are a massive club, um, they're the biggest club in the Midlands in terms of their support. Uh, we've got a wonderful history. You mentioned uh, before we spoke about Peter Whiff, um, you know, played in that wonderful night in Amsterdam when they won the European Cup. And they went through some lean years, um, you know, not only on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. But it was coming for a while. And I thought last season uh, there was an absolute disaster losing to Fulham in that final. They had problems off the pitch. It looked as though they had to sell their best player in Jack Grealish. And all of a sudden this season it turned around. He, he didn't end up going to Tottenham. Uh, Dean Smith, a local lad, uh, come in uh, for Steve Bruce. And they went on that amazing, I think it was a 10-match unbeaten run right towards the end of the season. And uh, I don't know, things just sort of seemed to fall for them. Even when they were 1-0 down in that semi-final against West Brom at home, I just had a feeling that things were going to go their way, and they did. Little things went their way. Um, I remember in that game, Dwight Gale getting sent off, and he obviously missed the return. They won on penalties in the end. And, and at Wembley, uh, they just had that feeling, um, like you just said, um, that, that things were, things all went their way, even though I got a little bit nervy towards the end. Uh, Bozza, look, the, for me, Villa, I thought, started really, really well first half. Yeah. Um, and they, they were always on the ascendancy. And I thought, I thought Derby had set up to say, Let, let's not concede in the first half an hour and yeah. be behind uh, and then try and creep our way into it to half-time and then see what the second half brings. But obviously that was undone by, obviously, the goal before half-time, which yeah. it, it, if you look at it from a defender's point of view, which I was, or a midfielder even when I occasionally dropped in there, but not very often, there was a ball up to the halfway line and there was runners running off them. And it, for me, it was one where you go and commit a foul, break it up, stop the momentum for that particular break, reset, get everybody back in for the free kick that will be launched long. And then all of a sudden you don't go in one nil down. And Yeah, well, that, that was absolutely huge. And look, for me, the most important parts of the game are the first the first 10 minutes and last 10 minutes of each half. Of course, half. yeah. Um, and, and that right before half time was crucial. Uh, and also, sometimes after you score a goal, you, either you get another one or the other team gets a really good chance. But the score right before half time, like um, El Ghazi did, and they had that breather to get themselves back into the mode. Um, I, I thought, like I said, I just think things went for them. You know, when you just get that gut feeling, it's hard to explain to people that you would have had it before Dean and yep. Francis about your own team. You have that feeling that things are just going to go your way no matter what happens. And I thought they had that this year. Now, where that come from, um, like I said to you, I think that 10-match uh, winning streak had a lot to do with it. And also, John Terry as assistant, it's always great having somebody of that vast experience and, and success that he's had at the highest level. Um, it really is a great sounding board, not only for the manager, but also for the boys when they see someone like him next to the manager. They know if he tells them something that, you know, and he would have been giving them so much belief. 
And in those big games, it's men and moments and also self-belief, which are so important and crucial. And we're seeing that next generation of managers and, and former stars now um, making their mark. Terry is the assistant along, yeah. alongside Dean Smith at Villa. Frank Lampard's performance, uh, Bozza and Dean, yeah. as, in the first year uh, in charge of first full year in charge of the Rams was was quite significant, wasn't it? He's a manager yeah. of the future for sure. Yeah, most definitely. I'm, I was very close to Frank at my time with Chelsea. Uh, he's got a wonderful football brain, just like his father. Um, his father, you know, like I said, wasn't only an excellent player, but he, he was a great assistant manager uh, during his time. And he used to have plenty of conversations with, with the both of them. And um, that obviously speaks, you know, from, from him into Frank. And then he had that great experience at, uh, you know, well, it's not a good experience for those managers at Chelsea, but to have so many of those managers, you are... Um, you could say you are shown to sort of different styles of management. It was started off with Ranieri, he had Mourinho, he had Ancelotti. I mean, the list goes on. Good didn't come in for a, for a while. Um, so, it, it, you know, you, those type of things, I keep telling that to people, it's, it's very difficult to explain. But those type, when you have that experience with great managers, um, you learn more probably in a day than you will ever do maybe, you know, going to a coaching course. Coaching courses are important, don't get me wrong. Um, but that just gives you that little bit of an extra edge. And, and you can see that. You can see the effect that he had on the team. I mean, that performance they, they put in at Ellen Road in that semi-final yeah. second leg was absolutely out, outstanding. And they'll be back. And hopefully they can take a leap out of Villa's book and, and get in the playoff. Well, no, not, not even go through that playoff agony. Actually go directly up next season. Tony Bozzer, I always look back to the... I don't know if you... You most probably have seen it. It's been around for a long time. There was like... Um, they were at West Ham and Harry Redknapp was the manager and yeah. there was all the supporters there in the crowd and yeah. and he was a he was a baby like really baby faced he was maybe sixteen seventeen and one of the supporters said look you know he shouldn't be starting in the first team there's got this guy and that guy and yeah. Harry Redknapp took massive offence to it and said listen this man is going to go or this boy is going to go to the top. And that was it really before it even started. And I think yeah. I think the, the, the people who know the game really well, who've been around yeah. it, they can see little things that go, as long as he keeps himself tidy in regards to injuries, he yeah. can have an unbelievable career. Yeah, well, most definitely. And, and look at, you know, you, you, you spoke about, you know, Harry Redknapp and what he did. And he did the same. He had a, had quite, he had a great generation of young players at West Ham. And they all come through pretty much together. You talk about Michael Carrick, Rio Ferdinand, uh, Frank Lampard Jr. himself. And and like I said, if you nurture those young players really well, regardless of where they're from, I mean, it always is a massive bonus where they're from, the country where, where you're from as well. So if it's a local Australian lad or it's a local British lad yep. or you know, a local Italian lad in here, so it does give you a wee bit of an advantage. But that's understandable. Um, but if you nurture them right and you give them the right opportunity and you allow them to develop, you can see what can occur. Mark Bosnich is with us uh, from uh, Fox Sports Football, talking to us about his beloved Aston Villa's uh, uh, return to the Premier League after seeing off uh, Dean's Rams. <laughs> Derby County in the playoff final. £300 million, pounds, they say, it's worth to the winning team. I know the cliche is the richest uh, game in football, but it's yeah. also what you were required to compete in the Premier League. And, and Villa are going to have to spend wisely because part of their squad, they got really canning in the in the loans market. Tammy Abraham from Chelsea, yeah. Axel Tunzebe United, and Tyrone Mings from Bournemouth all played really big parts in this campaign. Yeah. So they've got to go and find a way to spend that money wisely so that they can, uh, you know, not only just uh, have a good season, but, you know, have a real impact next year, Mark? Well, I think that that's, a, that's a massive point. A lot of people have been talking about that already. I mean, me personally, I would always stick with, with the boys that got me up. Um, I would add yeah. to the squad. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I spoke briefly before that, you know, there were some massive problems off the pitch for Aston Villa. Um, 
you know, with the inland revenue um, for, for those in Australia, that's like the tax office, they, they were, debts were mounting left, right and centre. Um, so uh, they'll have to be very, very prudent in, in how they spend their money. And maybe the loan way is a way to go. You know, you see a lot of these massive clubs, uh, Chelsea, Manchester United, Manchester City, uh, just to name a few, who do stockpile a lot of young talent. And, uh, and you know, it's great, like I, said, I just spoke about, you know, bringing up young boys and letting them develop. And there's, there's no better way, in my opinion, than for them to be playing and to go out on loan. Um, I know there's been you know, a lot of people sort of turn their nose up, so, well, this is not right, but that's, that's the way of modern football. And there's a lot of bargains to be had by getting a lot of those young boys on loan. And that comes down to your scouting department. So, yes, it, it's, you know, like I said, it's, it's a massive windfall for the club, but we also, they should take a lesson out of Fulham's book. Fulham spent, I think, yeah. the second most uh, out of all the teams this season. It still went straight back down. So you've got to be very, very careful who you start throwing money at. Because there will be a lot of people who uh, maybe are on the uh, sort of on the downside of their career saying oh well, I'll go to Aston Villa but when things get really really tough um, you know I think they should basically look at a great example with Jack Grealish local lad um, you know young boy wants something to prove those are the ones who really you know you, you want in the trenches with you when things will get tough and they will do next season um, I think they'll go, get off to a good start like all newly promoted teams normally do but there will come a time when the test you know occurs yeah. and they lose two on the trot and maybe when it gets to the winter months where you do need people who are going to really dig in. And, and that's what they should be thinking of. But I'm sure Dean Smith, um, especially with the career that he's had and the fighting qualities that he's got, I'm, I'm sure they've already got on their mind who they want to get and the type of player and type of character they want to get. At least with the 300 million quid, they'll be able to buy Jack Grealish a new pair of boots because it looks like it. <laughs> 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 he's worn those ones out. Good on you, boss. Great to talk. And, uh, yeah, congratulations. Great to have Villa back in, in the top Yeah, flight. well done, Villa. Take care. Take care, guys. Great to talk to you guys. Good on you. Mark Bosbizel, Australian legend, uh, Socceroos legend and Villa legend as well. With us here on Box to Box, talking about Aston Villa's return to the Premier League. Francis Leach and Dean Hennessy with you. Coming up soon, we're going to talk all things Europe. Box to Box. Can you believe it? The Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The king of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Talking everything football on Macquarie Radio, NTS, Francis Leach and Dean Hennessy in uh, tonight. Rob Gilbert and Michael Leslie's return soon. In fact, they're just coming up very, very soon on stoppage time from Paris. Now, Dino, if you're taking a hammering from pain, this should help. Try and maxi Jesic from Chemist <laughs> Warehouse. You could win a share of twenty-eight grand, twenty-eight thousand dollars in weekly prizes for your chance to win. Simply try maxi Jesic from Chemist Warehouse, then head to chemistwarehouse.com.au/maxi-jesic, M-A-X-I-G-E-S-I-C, and follow the entry details. So if you're taking a hammering from pain, then brighten your day and use that for a chance to win right now at Chemist Warehouse. Maxi Jesic twelves are. Only $4.99. Always read the label. Use only as directed. Maxi Chizik is for the temporary relief of pain and correct use. Could be harmful. Symptoms persist. Consult your healthcare professional. Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. Time to talk European football. It is cup time in Europe. It's playoff time. It's the end of the season. It's the business end. And there's been plenty going on, Dino. There certainly has, Francis. And there's, uh, there's a little story that I, I threw out last week. It just intrigued me that uh, in, in the River Divisi, uh, there was a side called uh, De Grap Schap. And uh, they are were, or still are, at the stage from last week, they were in the top flight. So they're in the top league. But they were going to play against a team called Cambur. Um, and they have a they have a manager that, of the team that's actually in the top league. And his name's Hank De Jong. Now, he, for some reason, 
has already agreed to go to Camber next season before this game's played. Because don't forget, he's in the top league. They're coming up, because obviously they, they were going for promotion. And then they find out they've got to play each other in a knockout. So what does he do? Because <laughs> if he wins the game, then he's back in the second division. Or if he throws the game and they go up, then there's going to be a question mark. Anyway... <laughs> So that's the dyna- so that's the dynamic. So we we're all sitting here going, well, what, what would you do? do? Anyway, so what get- did he do? So what happened is the first the first leg was Camber at home and it was a one one draw. So obviously there's an, you know there's a away away goal. Away goal. So you're thinking here we go, and then uh, the Grab Shap did the business and won two nil. So they won three one on aggregates. So what he's done, he's done the right thing as the manager of the River Daisy uh, team and kept them in the league. But to his new owners, who are just about to employ him, they're still in the division they were in. <laughs> so I've never heard of this That's ever in my life. So that was the one. Very moral people. The Dutch Very team, moral, right? the Dutch. Because yeah, we did question, would he throw it? But he didn't. And then the other one was the playoff, which is great news. Uh, there was the, the, you know, the Bundesliga and then obviously the second tier. They have this playoff game. I love their playoff game. I this like is the relegation playoff it game, is. isn't it? The it's survival super. match. And Stuttgart were involved in it. So anyway, the, again, goes to the first leg and um, it's 2-2. And um, Union Berlin, you know, get the the away goal. Um, and then at home, it's a 0-0. So they go through on goal. So Stuttgart are relegated and FC Union Berlin are now in the Bundesliga. There you go. So there's the updates for from last week's show. I promised I would keep you in the loop. But obviously to more pressing things, I mean, I think we'll start and then build up towards the champion, Champions League. But we started off with the League 2 playoff, uh, Newport County and Tranmere. Um, it was 25,000 at the game. It was at Wembley. It, I'll be honest with you, I'm just going to tell it as it is. I got about 20 minutes into it and I'm going, I'm struggling. And I said, if it don't get any better by half time, I'm going to bed. So the and quality of football wasn't that scintillating. To be fair, it was, wasn't. It didn't meet the standard of the stage on which it was set. It certainly didn't, in my opinion. And uh, to be honest, I'm going to put two hands up and it's in the studio. I bailed at half time. Fair enough. Anyway, who went through? Well, it just. Yeah, Dino, it, it, you it, put in a marathon effort of like yeah. every time in the group chat. Who saw this game? Dino, yeah, yeah I was yeah, up. Yeah, I watched yeah, it. So. Yeah. I had to bin this one. Anyway, 94th minute, Tranmere Rovers get the winner. Did Mike Dean uh, uh, lead the pitch invasion? Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Did they have a camera just on uh, him? It was great. Yeah. I, I, people find it, and I do find it amazing that the, one of the world's top referees is an unashamed fan. I love it. I think it's great. I think it brings, I think it puts him in such a better light as an individual that he goes well I'll go there go there but this is what it's all about for me and I love that and I think that's what football is all about and playing in non-league and then going the into footage of him when they won at home oh, and a, he's standing on the seat oh, it was amazing leading the crowd in it a raucous kick chorus anyway well I don't know the so, mighty Tramier Rovers so then we go to Sunderland till I die oh. Oh. Now, this game was worth watching to the very well, end. This, well, I did actually get through all this. So that? tell people what happened here. This is the this is the playoff in League Two. So this is obviously Sunderland that's gone relegation, relegation. Yeah. They do a documentary. Mighty Sunderland Black Cats. Die, the Black Cats. I mean, I remember them in the 73 uh, FA Cup yep. against Leeds. Bob Stoko, Bobby Kerr. I mean, I, I remember it like it was yesterday and everyone dancing. I mean, it was just Jim Montgomery save, Peter Lorimer. What a save. Anyway. So Charlton, the, the, 
Sunderland go one nil up with a bizarre, bizarre own goal. Shocker. And uh, and it was the boy um, uh, Saar, uh, fifth minute own goal. So it's a bad start. Anyway, uh, Charlton huff and puff and then get one back in the 35th minute with the, the boy Puminton. And, and it was game on. So then second half, it got a bit tasty and, and it was going both end to end. There was a lot of desperation. But again, very last last phase of play. Chartner attacking, gets out wide on the left. He jinks, he jinks again. He clips it to the far post. He heads it down. It hits a leg, comes out, pops again. And, and, and as, it, as, as he shoots, it hits, ricochets off the defender, goes straight in and Sunderland again. Desperate for them desperate and it they're just, hard losses it, it's terrible i mean and, and and i know what they're like up there because i grew up with sunderland fans when they were with Notts county in the old days and they're so passionate it's not getting any better dana they're gonna have to commission a second season well, I, I think there's, like, there's enough content if you haven't seen sunderland till I, till I die must watch yeah, we're tv all big fans on this program <laughs> and then obviously uh obviously the championship is derby villa my team uh, derby and uh, one of my best mates, Steve Smith, he played National League and uh, he's a certain Villa fan. And anyway, it all started off. Uh, it was a massive. Oh, by the way, the crowd at that League One game for uh, Charlton and Sunderland was 76,500. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, the, that, Sunderland, that the Stadium of Light, a bit like. And Charlton yeah. had come back. Which is interesting because Charlton Athletic, about a year and a half ago, like a number They're of out. clubs, They're yeah, financially ruined. And we touched on it last week. The Australian Consortium looking to buy Charlton is moving buy. ahead, as I believe. So yeah. that could be on the on the short-term horizon that the Australian Consortium could take over Charlton and form a sort of Australian base in South London. And Lee Bowyer, the manager, he did a fabulous job. Which is fascinating to think of as Lee Bowyer, one of the uh, tearaways of the oh, Premier League in the it, 90s and, and one of the bad lovely. boys. Wasn't, it was, it was it him he had that fight yeah, with yeah. Kieran, Kieran Dyer? Kieran Dyer, yeah, right, and they're both yeah. playing for Newcastle. <laughs> yeah, that's never been forgotten. Anyway, the Derby <laughs> one. Um, look, Villa over, over the 90 minutes deserved it. El Ghazi was good all day, to be fair. He yeah. scored in the 45th, 44th minute. Again, a goal I think Derby could have not conceded. Um, doesn't get any better into the second half. McGinn uh, comes off his shoulder. Goalkeeper, blunder. You know, should go and deal with it. Doesn't deal with it. 2-0 down. And you're thinking, that's done. I was all there with my boys and said, well, come on, we'll just keep digging in, digging in. We'll get something. And all of a sudden, um, they made the change. And uh, Waghorn scored the goal. Um, then it was game on. But it was game on. And for me, there was about four or five chances at the end. And I, and I think the pendulum had swung. And I think had it gone into extra time, Derby would have turned this thing around. Oh, tough. Tough for you, Dino. Yeah. Billy go up and Derby have to do it all again. But Bozzer, obviously, he'll be happy. So, uh, so as long <laughs> as Boz happy. is happy, we're all happy. Does <laughs> Frankie Lampard stay another season for I you, I think Dean? he does. I hope yeah. so. Uh, I think, look, don't go to Chelsea. It's a, no, far it's, too soon. Just, just don't go yet. Just get your powder dry. Try and get Derby up again. And then, obviously, um, sorry to tell you the news that it should be <sighs> Europa League. Chelsea 4-1 against Arsenal. Not um, even in the contest after that. Uh, it was a tough one. It was uh, it was obviously... The first half, I thought Arsenal most probably just shaded it. Uh, but then second half, 40, Giroud, 49. Great little header. Pedro, 60th. Then Hazard, who's been absolutely, for me outstanding, takes a penalty, goes 3-0, and you think that's it. Then all of a sudden, Iwobi substituted, comes on. Lovely volley. Great little volley. And then all of a sudden, it's, you're thinking, game on. You know, if you get another one quickly, it's really game on. But no, two minutes later, three minutes later, 
another another hazard bit of genius and uh, games put to bed. And so Chelsea uh, have the Europa Cup to add to their trophy cabinet. Arsenal miss out crucially on a chance to qualify for the Champions League. We spoke to Richard Bayless earlier on in the program about the Champions League final, which is coming up on Sunday morning our time between well, Liverpool. Well, it's and a five o'clock start. Yeah. I will be in Sydney, so I'll be watching it in Sydney at five a.m. and then I'll go straight to the airport and fly home. <laughs> now, just quickly, we've got the Nations League coming up. Just for those uh, for our listeners, so uh, what we've got there is that the Nations League, if you remember, is the the, the route to the um, Euro. Well, sorry, what's it called? Um, U- U- European Championships. But they've got this. The, the league winners of League A was the Netherlands in Group One, Switzerland in Group Two, Portugal in Group Three, and England in Group Four, which has then pitted them into a semi-final uh, event coming up. Uh, not this week but next week but I thought we'd just touch on it Portugal Switzerland and then Netherlands England and then there's a third play third place playoff on the Sunday with the final uh, to be the winner I just I think they just win a cup I think that's it they don't get qualification for the Euros we've checked that out so we're just thinking it's just a Mickey Mouse Cup. Just a Mickey Mouse Cup. That's the players yeah. just hanging out to go on holiday and forced to work a little bit longer for, them, for their hard-earned millions. So we've got, I think, about 30 <laughs> seconds left in this uh, segment. So um, I think after next week, we might be scrambling for some material, but then again, we won't be. There's always there's something. There's plenty of things in football, as we all know. There is. Good on you, Dino. Thank you. Yeah, Dean Hennessy there with a look at all things European football. And uh, in a moment, we'll head to Europe because Michael Ledger, who's usually in this seat on Box to Box, is in Paris preparing for the invasion of the Green and Gold Army, the Australian fans who are heading across to France to watch the Matildas at the World Cup. We'll catch up with Edge in just a moment here on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the king of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Francis Leach here for Michael Edgley and uh, and also Rob Gilbert, who can't be here tonight. Dean Hennessy is uh, our regular here. He, he, he's the defensive midfielder in this program. He just shields the back four and controls the flow of the play. And it is the fourth official who's blown, uh, Dino, and it's time for stoppage time. Stoppage and, time, yep. We should head to Paris because Michael Edgley, who's usually in the studio here for Box to Box, is in Paris getting ready for the Green and Gold Army's uh, invasion of France for the Matildas campaign in the upcoming 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup. Edge, how are you? Good uh, morning from Paris, Francis and Dino. Um, Yeah, it's a a beautiful morning here in Paris. Uh, Nice and green as you would expect. Summer has arrived. Um, Roland Garros is in full bloom. It's a bank holiday. And the streets are deserted. I'm a bit worried. But, um, no, no, uh, obviously, Women's World Cup's on everybody's lips here in Paris. And uh, not to mention the uh, couple of hundred Australians who are involved with the Green and Gold Army Tour, who are um, some of them already on their way, and others will be making their way very shortly, including <laughs> the great Francis Leach, Dino. Have you, have you been reminding him of the enti- through the entire show, Dean? That well, I didn't know he was, I didn't know he was actually on the, on the list. I, did, I, I was looking at the bags. I can't remember seeing him on there. Was he on the bags? Well, there's, like, there's me playing the... the he was on the bags. Dean. He was on he the was bags. On the I must have missed him. I'll pack the bags for you. Uh, I'll put a little special one in for you. Thanks, Dino. That's me go. playing the squeeze box here, getting ready for my Parisian lifestyle. Uh, what, what's the vibe like, Edge? Do you get a sense that there's a big tournament coming? Is it? Does it have the feel of a of a, a World Cup as we would know it? Well, obviously, it does in terms of my little network because everybody I'm working with or my local suppliers, the project team that we've got in, in France is uh, really keyed into it. But, yeah, you do get a sense that there is a, 
um, a greater, um, a great big event coming. Um, and there is a lot of momentum building behind um, behind the local team, France, obviously. They are uh, one of the favourites for the event. You would expect that. But they had a, a rich tradition and culture of women's football in France. It's probably the best league in the world um, outside of the National Women's Soccer League in the United States. So, you know, there is a, a great tradition and heritage for women's football in France. And, um, I mean, you know, all of the French games have been sold out. They're playing in big stadia. So... Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm expecting the French women to make a very big impact at this World Cup. So what you're saying basically also is that, you know, it's a chance for the French national women's team to rise to the status of the men's team, who are the reigning world champions. And uh, and there is a quantum leap when a team does well at home, isn't there? If they can progress to the semi-final or final, uh, you know, it does enormous things for their reputation. It certainly does. And as you know, Francis, the, um, the, the cultural significance of the... Um, the French-born African players in the men's team. It's similar in the women's team. Um, therefore, they have a great um, degree of respect and support coming from those migrant communities, which are such a big part of France's uh, culture, history and tradition. So um, I'm, um, I'm expecting this, not only the stadiums to be packed, but also to be jumping with uh, atmosphere. And, you know, it, it'll be fantastic. And, uh, and I know the people involved in the event um, keep telling me that uh, the the momentum's building around the French women in a very big way. And they will really ride the crest of the wave off, off the success of the men's team. Imagine if France won the men's in 2018 and the women in 2019. That would be the peak of football, wouldn't they? Absolutely, that would be. Ajit Dino here. Um, it's interesting with France. I mean, they've got a reasonably kind draw in Group A. Uh, the rankings are... Fr- the French are obviously ranked fourth in the world at this moment, with Norway uh, in 12th place and... South Korea 14 so those are most probably the games that might be dangerous for them where Nigeria comes in at 38 that should be a pretty good three points for that particular game so you know I expect Nigeria you never know what you're going to get with Nigeria both in men's and women's football they are just rich with talent so they could turn up and do something special but uh, no no, I think the French will be well and truly prepared and and our Asian compatriots uh, Korea the Korea Republic they play France in the opening game they do at Parc de Princess where where Paris Saint-Germain play their home games and um, all of the two are guests including Francis will be heading out to see that game that'll be amazing I I, I just somehow think that that's going to be a bit of an ambush for the Koreans it'll be a big night for football in France and I just don't know whether they might be ready so that'll be in a I'm expecting a bit of an avalanche that night. Michael Leslie's with us from Paris, getting ready for the Matildas uh, invasion of France, the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup, where the Green and Gold Army will be there. How many uh, people will we be travelling with with the uh, Green and Gold Army on this tour, Edge? Well, we've got three programs, Francis, so we've got about 200 people across all three programs, so about 100 in our group phase program. But they're all involved in women's football in some capacity or part of our community, so um, it, it is, you know, we've got a, a fair share of the players' families on our tour as well, so it'll be a very tight unit. Uh, we're going to have all sorts of fun. I'll tell you what, um, though I had to um, send Melissa Barbieri to Disneyland, not you, Francis, I do apologise. <laughs> well, I think, that was a, that, well, she is a Matilda's legend, so she gets first dibs on Disneyland. I, thought I, could, I can wear that edge. Yeah, I'm sure you can, but are you looking forward to it, Francis? I mean, uh, we have been to some amazing places together, but uh, uh, South Africa, Brazil, Russia, Japan... Um, how do you think this is going to go for, for you in terms of the 
Football World Cups that you've seen. What what are you expecting out of France uh, 2019? What I'm really excited about is that I think this is the breakthrough the watershed tournament for women's football. I think that this is where history is going to be made. Now, we've seen uh, women's football develop in the last 20 years. There's no doubt that it, it, the profile that it has gathered has been significant. The success of the US teams and their prominence at home has sort of driven a lot of that and the professional leagues. But I just think it's on a crest or on the precipice of something really significant. And what I love about it is that it, it's still accessible. It's still feels like it's a game and a tournament that belongs to the people, whereas the World Cup that we know sometimes can feel a little uh, like it's it's corporatised and it's a bit too big to actually get a, a real sense of or, uh, of yeah. what it means to be connected to the players and to the game sometimes. And I, I think that that's what's going to be special. That's the, I mean, that's the trademark that the Matildas have made their own, isn't it? That accessibility, that affinity with young crowds and, and young players, that sense that they come from the same place you do. I think this tournament's going to have that. And I, I think that's what's going to make it special, Edge. I agree with you 100%, Francis. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Francis, was... Um, the expectation on the Matildas. Mm. Um, obviously, I'm in a position where I'm talking to uh, regularly to all the, the guests that are, are going to be attending the tour program with us, and I have to say that expectations are very high that yeah. the Matildas will at least make the quarterfinals. Uh, we saw uh, we saw Scotland beat Jamaica 3-2 um, just a couple of days ago in a friendly, and Jamaica were very competitive, and they've got a very very good number nine. Um, it, it, it's it's just not going to be easy, is it? How do you think? The Australian camp, you know, more broadly, the federation, the, the coaching group, and the and the players will deal with what are fairly lofty expectations from the public. Well, be careful what you wish for, isn't it, uh, Edge and Dino? Women's football has been on the rise in Australia. The success of those home fixtures we've seen with Brazil visiting a couple of times, huge crowds in Newcastle and in Western Sydney and in, in Melbourne to watch the Matildas play has built that reputation, which is what they've wanted, but so comes the expectation. And I think we are in a position where we don't quite know, Dean and, and Edge, what Ante Milicic has been able to rescue from what was a really traumatic summer with the departure of Alan Stacic and what has changed or what's transformed in the team or whether they've gone backwards as a consequence, only going to be really understood under the pressure of uh, the intensity of a World Cup. If you watched recent games, uh, I don't know what you feel, uh, Dino. Their defensive work is sometimes going forward. They are good. They're really good. Mm, Yeah, but... but against the United States in those recent friendlies, they gave up goals a little bit too See, easy. I've been just doing a little bit of research in days, obviously, for, for our show. And um, and I've been looking at it is that it's most probably the experienced Matildas that we're looking for to stand up. You know, we've got uh, we've got some some of them are going there for their third tournament in the in their history. And there's others that go in there for the fourth time. So Lisa Devano, Lisa Devano, I mean, just, yeah, uh, Lydia? Lydia Williams. Uh, and then you've got the Sam Kerrs, the Laura Elways, Caitlin Ford. The list goes on. There's a lot of experience in there. So if they they can then, with the younger ones in the in the group, because that's generally, they might most probably not that nervous because it's a new new adventure, no expectation. Where I suppose some of the experienced players go, oh, hold on, we've been here before, but we are another X amount of years older. But I think if that works, I mean, if you look at the the actual game, the first game as well, it's, it's, if you look at the seedings in regards to rankings, Australia are sixth, Brazil 10, so that's going to be tough. And then obviously Italy in 15, and then you've got Jamaica, as Edge just said, with a decent striker that, you know what it's like, the decent striker, anything can happen. So they're just going to have to, you know, the old cliche, one game at a time, get the job done. But I'm pretty confident they'll they'll go... They'll go quite deep into the tournament. Edge, it's their first game against Italy that'll set the tone. Oh, it is. That is, um, it's massive because 
uh, we know when you when you lose your first match when you're expected to win the the wheels can really fall off because all of a sudden you're chasing the tournament. So it's going to be a nervous start that game. Um, Italy, um, you know, despite their poor ranking and they haven't qualified for the uh, World Cup in over 20 years in the women, um, despite all of that, we understand they're building some momentum. They're not going to be a pushover. So that first game will be uh, probably a nervous start. And um, I agree with what Dean said, but also you, Francis. A lot's going to depend on the ability of the defensive group to stand up and play big minutes. So whether the central pairing in defence is, whether that's going to be Alloway and Catley or Polkinghorn uh, and Kennedy or Kennedy and Alloway, it'll be really interesting to see what Milicic goes with with a central defensive pairing because they need to, to front up and play big minutes so he can uh, use the depth of his bench through the midfield and uh, and, uh, and and forward. Um, you know, that's the way typically coaches approach World Cups. So a lot's riding on that. Big first game against Italy in Valencians, which is going to be a spectacle, a beautiful little stadium of that doesn't seat, so it's going to be fabulous. Edge, can't wait to see you in Paris, and uh, let's hope the Matildas can take us on uh, the ride of our lives. Uh, bonsoir, Signor, and uh, we'll catch you in Paris. I mixed my languages, I went uh, a bit French, a bit Spanish there. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> hey, Dino. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for sending out the bags. We appreciate that. Yeah, good lad. Good lad. <laughs> Michael Edgeley, the Green and Gold Army, <laughs> in Paris for the Matildas campaign at the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup. Uh, that's it for Box to Box tonight. Thank you, Dino. Thank you for having me in the team Brilliant. tonight. Yep, superb. Uh, love it when you come in. It's a totally different vibe. So you like not my... saying it's better or worse, because obviously we've still got Edge on, on board, but no, it's been brilliant. At least uh, I, can, I can play the squeeze box. You, can, you can do it it's well. It's beautiful. Ha 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 ha!